Greetings and welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm your host, Jason Dressel. It's good to be back after a hiatus over these last few months. We have a great new season coming your way in which I'll talk to business leaders, authors, academics, thought leaders, historians, and archivists on a whole range of eclectic topics, beginning with today's episode with Ted Ryan, the Heritage Brand Manager and Head of Archives for the Ford Motor Company. Ted has an amazingly cool job, and he's really elevated the visibility and use of brand heritage and the iconic history of Ford in some really forward-looking ways. And as you'll also hear in our discussion, before joining Ford almost five years ago, Ted was an archivist at another company and brand you may be familiar with, a little organization called Coca-Cola. So Ted has had a great career and a very busy 2022. As you're about to hear, he worked on a project that broke the internet. He's been involved with major product launches for the iconic Mustang and Bronco brands. And this summer, he was inducted as a fellow of the Society of American Archivists. So without further ado, please welcome my friend, Ted Ryan from Ford Motor Company. Ted, welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, well, you've been you've been very busy, sir. Uh, but first, let's start with just uh, share with our listeners just a little bit of an overview of the Ford Archive and uh, what it entails. The Ford Archives is a pretty interesting beast. And uh, before Ford, I was at Coca Cola for twenty one years, so I've seen the brand side, and this is more of the the technical side. So. We have a staff of six uh, that man the archives for us. I'll give you the gee whiz facts. That's what we call them. Uh, We have uh, three miles of shelving, six kilometers. Uh, On those shelves, we have 16,000 cubic feet of records. We have three uh, temperature controlled vaults for our AV materials. So we have 3.5 million negatives. We probably have 10,000 feet of uh, film rather. Uh, and then we have a dedicated video uh, vault as well. Um, we have a small but growing art collection and a small but growing uh, 3D collection. But might surprise people listening is we don't have many cars. Uh, we have a we have a Model T. We have a 1938 uh, ambulance, uh, and we have a tw- uh, 20. I uh, know a 2000 electric Ranger. Uh, that is the extent of my car collection. So most of the time we. Uh, we work with uh, enthusiast groups and others to support our car needs uh, whenever we, we need to, to get a Mustang or a Bronco for something. Well, my guess is you have no shortage of folks contacting you, though, with the idea that you should acquire their old car. Is that correct? That is correct. We get uh, quite a few cold calls. And uh, troublingly, a lot of times within Ford, we'll get a call for, hey, we've got the the very first self-driving uh, Fusion is now being transferred out. It's due to go to the crusher in January. Help me find a home for it. Uh, so I did find a home for it, uh, and and we move forward with that. Um, but uh, it's interesting, and hopefully we're going to change that in the future and and, and get selected vehicles. Um, I will say we've had a partner over the years, the Henry Ford Museum. It's a very complicated relationship. Private or there, I'm sorry, nonprofit uh, 503C. They are their own beast. They are the actual corporate name is the Edison Institute. 
And Henry Ford initially and Ford Motor Company over the years have donated many of our vehicles and many of and most of our papers prior to 1953 to the Henry Ford. So we work with them, they work with us. Uh, and you know, we, we sort of, we run our own path. So they you know, they have been offered many of the vehicles over the years and they've accepted some, but uh, their collections are getting full now and they're getting a little bit more uh, uh, selective in what they're gonna keep. Yeah, it's a it's a spectacular institution, and uh, certainly I, I went there a number of times as a kid. And uh, what what always stood out for me was Edison's Last Breath, and uh, and uh, was it Tom Thumb's Billiard Table, and yeah. I believe I don't remember was it a well you'll you'll tell me was it a Lincoln that that uh, JFK was assassinated in? It was the Lincoln that JFK was assassinated in, and ironically, they also have the chair that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. That's right. In. And that's right. Rosa Parks. Plus, it's a world class museum. There, there is no, yeah. Yeah. no two ways about it. But it's yeah. not the Ford Motor Company archives. And when yeah. Ford Motor Company wants to do an event or have a heritage based celebration, you know, that's my job is to help us find the best way to do that. It's not the Henry Ford's job to to do that uh, in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, pretty yeah. clear swim swim lanes when it comes to how it all gets activated. Yeah. Yeah, everyone seems to have a piece of the uh, the Lincoln assassination. We've got a uh, we've got a replica of the cloak he was assassinated in uh, here in the Brooks Brothers archive. So go figure. <laughs> um, so so Ted, how, how how do your how does how does the enterprise use use the archives? Uh, I, I mean, I think you know, one thing that's always interesting, particularly in the automotive space, is you know it's really a living, breathing resource. Um, so I'm curious, just you know, what's kind of the a day a day in the life of of the Ford Archives look like in terms of the stakeholders that you're supporting? Now, it's a really good question, and it's fascinating too because there for me it's great. There are no two days are alike. Every day is different because every project is different, and and the emails come in, and, and it's all different. Uh, it's not nine to five. The Ford Archives has undergone a transformation since 2015. Uh, it went from being more of a straight library. A very well-run library, very efficient library, as I described, our beautiful space with temperature control. But it was not very proactive. It was more reactive of media people coming to us or PR people within Ford coming to us and asking for photos. Okay, I need a I need a 1956 Continental Mark II image, uh, no celebrities, rights-free. And then we would give them that image. And um, about five years ago, the decision was made to turn it more into a storytelling unit so that if somebody within media relations came to us and said, we need a 1956 Continental Mark II, we'd use the, you might also look for kind of feature that Amazon has made famous and say, okay, why did you need that picture? Is there a story to tell? Can we build out on what that is? So we essentially, uh, since 2015, since these changes began, we assist first the media relations. We always assist legal and the uh, crash test and all the boring legal stuff. Uh, we then now have pivoted and helped marketing. It's amazing how little interaction with marketing had taken place beforehand. Uh, hmm. Well, marketing looks forward. And I used to get this at Coke all the time too. You know, my job is to look forward, not back. Well, if you look back, you might have a, a kernel of the DNA of what made the brand the brand and, and know how to use it to look forward. So they would work with marketing on the 50th anniversary of the Mustang or something like that. Um, but over the past five years, we've really tried, tried to change it 
to integrate us into the business process. One of my favorite stories as a corporate archivist ever is the Bronco story where the Bronco marketing team and PR and communications teams came into the archives. I had only been at Ford a short couple of weeks and I convinced, convinced everybody to come over. It's the first time the marketing team had ever been to the archives. And we set up a display of, mus- uh, of Bronco, rather. We had every paint color. We had every fabric sample. We had all the sales brochures. We had the origin documents on the origins of the program. Uh, we had uh, fe- feasibility test studies. And one of the fe- feasibility studies, this is dated 1962, was called the GOAT, G-O-A-T. Uh, goes over all terrain or goes over any terrain. Because the same people designing the Bronco in the 60s were designing the Jeeps that Ford was building for the Army. They were called the Mutts. And uh, Ford, had, Ford had actually designed the original Jeep, but we designed and were building the Mutts uh, for, and during Vietnam for the U.S. Army. So that same team knew the military acronym of goes over any terrain, it goes over all terrain. Marketing people love, fell in love with it. All these official documents saying, goat, goat, goat. So if anybody is fortunate to have a brand new Bronco, you'll see that your different drive modes are called the goat modes. We actually do advertising for the Bronco saying, here's your goat mode. So that idea came out of the archives and came out of taking a document and making it a living piece of Ford history. The Bronco team wasn't going to redesign a 1962 Bronco, but they could understand the DNA of what made a Bronco a Bronco in 62 and incorporate that into what is in a new Bronco. I love that story, Ted. It's uh, we talk about that here at History Factory is golden nuggets, and you know we talk about it in the context of you find this authentic story, document, touchstone, and just the relevance it has to today. Uh, and I and I would expect, of course, that, that the use of goat now that that's become such a popular acronym with greatest of all time, and it's really become popularized again, just made it made it absolute gold for uh, for the marketing folks. It did, and we have a we we're in the middle of celebrating the hundredth anniversary of Lincoln, which very complicatedly is the hundredth anniversary of Ford purchasing Lincoln out of bankruptcy uh, court. Uh, you know, it, Lincoln had been around since 1917, but we bought him in 1922, and we've made sure to highlight a couple of the the pitfalls to celebrate the celebrations that much more. One of them, the JFK assassination that we reference, uh, but the other one is there's a document from '59 where they actually continued uh, or discussed discontinuing the Lincoln name, getting rid of Lincoln entirely. And uh, it's interesting because you can read exactly what Henry Ford II, what William Clay Ford, what all the executives were saying, uh, Robert McNamara, uh, of all things. He was actually president of of, uh, Ford and Lincoln at that time uh, before he went on to become Secretary of Defense. And this famous document, not famous, but this infamous document, they came that that I'm holding my fingers, uh, you know, breath apart. It came that close to canceling the Lincoln name, but what came out of that was the beautiful 1961 Lincoln with the suicide doors that opened in the middle and became a design classic that Sinatra wanted one and uh, Elvis Presley wanted one and you know everybody wanted one. Uh, guess who has one right now? Lady Gaga has a oh, really 65 Continental that she drives because it was considered one of the most beautiful cars of all time. And out of that, that golden nugget was the, the fall before the glory. Uh, is Lincoln going to go away? No, it's going to create an icon. And based on that icon, it's, it's going to live and grow. That's awesome. Um, any other stories from the, uh, from the 
reimagination and 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 and, and resurgence of, of the Bronco brand? The Bronco brand is a fascinating study for me. A couple of different stories. A, for the first time ever, we were going to have a car reveal in the archives. Uh, we It was going to take place on March 17, 2020. We all know what happened. Uh, you know, the week, March, what? 13th, March 13th, the world exploded and everybody went home. Uh, but that was going to take place. And, and we actually curated this exhibit in the archives uh, with three different Broncos of three different time periods. And part of the big focus was on pop culture, because as a cultural historian, and Jason, I'd be interested in your take, the Bronco went away in 1996 and only sold 8,000 units. It was a dying thing. It was not popular. It was enormous. It only had two doors. It only got about 12 to 14 miles per gallon. A certain running back from uh, the Buffalo Bills had gone around, traipsing around in LA a, a few short years before. In a white one, as I recall. White Bronco. (laughs) Always get asked, did OJ kill the Bronco? No, the Bronco was killed despite OJ. But it was was dying. It was was not a vibrant brand. Because, uh, frankly, America wanted four doors. The reverse boomers. You know, everybody hears about the baby boomers. Well, they all had kids, too. And that's called the reverse boom. And those reverse boomers wanted four doors for convenience. So they gobbled up the Explorer, which is what replaced the Bronco. So what made the Bronco, what made people cry to bring the Bronco back beginning in the mid 2000s? You know, 2000, about 2010, 2012, there's a groundswell to bring back the Bronco. It's been a dead brand. You know, the people who were clamoring to bring it back weren't alive when it went away. And so as a culture historian, the only thing I did some research, it appeared in more than 10,000 movies and TV shows. It appeared in iconic videos, you know, in Ocean's Eleven. That's what Brad Pitt's driving up in. You know, it's it became this status symbol kind of vehicle to the point that people wanted it back. Uh, so we played off of that fact with the reemergence of the Bronco and with the storytelling that we did around the Bronco. Um, but as an archivist slash historian, it, it it always it fascinates me to understand why why the trends go the way they are, and uh, you know, it, yeah. That's why they pay us. Well, there's been there's been such a there's been such a resurgence of 80s and 90s pop culture and um, and uh, uh, you know I, I think a lot to your point a lot of it is the millennials and and younger than millennials and the Bronco. I mean, I remember the Bronco though. Still, it's just it, it was a very unique sort of vehicle in the kind of SUV landscape, if you will. Because to your point, it was two, it was it was you know two doors, you know. It, so it, it was different than the Cherokee. It was different than the Trailblazer. It was you know kind of like a Jeep, but not really. So it did it did have kind of a unique place, from my recollection. And I always thought they were cool. Uh, I was in high school and college in in the 90s. Uh, but I would say I, d- I did not realize that um, I didn't remember why the Bronco got uh, got honorably discharged. And I certainly <laughs> didn't realize that the um, I didn't realize that the, uh, that the that the sales numbers were were so, so low. But what you share makes perfect sense. I'm going to steal that phrase dishonorably discharged. That's a good one. Uh, the Bronco fascinates me. The, you know, in my job, I've got the Bronco. I've got the Mustang. I've got the Lincoln brands, particularly the Continental and the the Navigator, which uh, doesn't get the credit it deserves. I mean, Navigator reinvented the SUV class of automobiles. Think about it. Prior to 1998, when the Navigator came out, there was no luxury SUV. You had 
the Ford products and you had the Chevy products and Chrysler had dipped big on the minivans products. And then suddenly uh, Lincoln comes out with the Navigator and it created a cultural icon to the point that Chevy followed, you know, copycatted it with the Escalade um, mm-hmm. to have a product in that market space. And then I've got the F-Series and everybody, you know, F-Series <clears throat> best-selling vehicle in America last year was a truck. Uh, put your head around mm-hmm. that one. Uh, not a sedan, but, you know, Americans in general have gone to SUV and trucks anyway. So to have the, the those iconic brands as part of my portfolio that I, uh, you know, do the care and feeding of, it's just been, it, it's like, it's like picking up candy. I mean, it's so easy. I, I, in reality, the job is, it's, it's hard, but it's easy at the same time because you just have to, you have to pick the right stories to tell. Yeah. So um, I think you, you mentioned uh, when we were emailing the other day about uh, the Mustang launch. Am I, am I right on that? We are. We just launched the all new Mustang seventh generation. Uh, and once again, uh, we finally got to do a real reveal in the archives. Uh, we had uh, two of the models in the archive space and we had uh, a couple of the historic ones in there. And once again, we created uh, the exhibits as the reporters walked in. So more than 150 reporters over two days got deep dives into the history of Mustang, but then got to see the all new Mustang. Um, and it's just fascinating too, because uh, where our competition is moving away from V8s and from uh, if you're not in the auto industry, you're not going to get this term from ICE engines, internal combustion engines. Uh, you know, uh, Chrysler just announced a discontinuation of the Charger nameplate uh, as mm-hmm. as a internal combustion engine. Uh, Ford, because of our huge footprint in EV and battery electric and hybrid that we already had, we've been in hybrid since 2004 and electric since 2000. So. We have enough of the EV credits, uh, air quotes, to be able to continue to produce V8s and the quantities that we need them for our trucks and our Mustangs. So this all new Mustang reveal was just amazing. And then uh, the dark horse is the super special one, uh, the Shelby variant, as it were, uh, that's going to be your 500 horsepower. And these things just look ferocious. They they look fast standing still. and it's exciting seeing Mustang going into its uh, 59th year, almost 60 years, uh, to know uh, that that brand is thriving. I did a quick search, Jason. I created a, a YouTube playlist of videos that feature Mustangs, and it's artists like Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift. What else would Taylor Swift break up in but a Mustang? Uh, Rolling <laughs> Stones. Um Jim Morrison, the only car he ever owned was a 68 GT350, and he called it the Blue Lady. And those videos have been seen by 14 billion people, 14 billion views of those videos. So once again, Mustang gets ingrained into your thought process because it becomes an icon. And for a brand to move into that icon status is so rare. And when it happens, like with the Mustang or with the Coke bottle from my previous employer, it's just spectacular to see, uh, you know, the benefits that that can bring to the to the company. Yeah, well, not as iconic, but uh, one of our our leaders here at uh, at History Factory, her first car uh, was a Mustang, and she still has it twenty years later. So she 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 loves that car. So now the other thing I wanted to ask you about Ted was um, earlier this year you launched the Heritage Vault uh, website, and uh, I'm I'm curious what were the 
uh, dare I say, drivers uh, behind that project? Um, and, and how did that come about? And, and what kind of uh, what kind of results are you seeing with the, the Heritage Vault? Yeah, the, the Ford Heritage Vault and the, the full URL is FordHeritageVault.com was an idea that was uh, two years in the making. Uh, no American OEMs, auto manufacturers, I'll, I'll, get it, I'll quit using the jargon. Uh, no American automobile manufacturers had an online library. Uh, yeah. Frankly, I cribbed the idea from Mercedes. Mercedes has a killer one. Theirs is fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's absolutely, I actually saw and did a presentation with the head of the Mercedes archives in Stockholm when I was still at Coke. And he sh- was demoing the system. And it's like, oh my gosh, I've got to, I've got to get me one of them. And so the idea was that we were going to take every single Ford uh, model from 1903 until 20 uh, or 2003 and get at least three shots of it, front, side, and, and quarter panel for the enthusiasts out there. And then the real value of it came with the addition of all the brochures. So every brochure that Ford has produced that we have in our collection, and we have gaps, so we're, we're trying to fill those, has now been scanned and included as part of the Heritage Vault. And we launched it on June 16th, which was the 100th anniversary of the company. And unfortunately for us, our IT provider, despite me countless times saying, hey, beef up, we're going to be popular, I, I promise you, I don't think they anticipated the, the load that hit the site. And it went down on day one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Three hours, I mean, oh, what a nightmare. Three hours after launch, we're down. Haggerty, the automobile manufacturer, actually had done a raving review of what the site content was and then had to update their site going, it looks like it's too good because it's down. The CEO of Ford, Jim Farley, actually sent me that note. He's like, Ted, thanks for breaking the internet. Now fix it. Um, so it took us a day and a half, two days, and and it took our IT provider uh well, I won't be name by name because I don't want to embarrass them, but they had to go from one server to eight networked servers to handle the traffic. But Jason, uh-huh. I mean, we broke the internet. And within the first two and a half weeks, uh, almost three weeks, we had 1.5 million searches take place within the system and almost wow. 500,000 uh, assets downloaded. Everything is wow. free. Everything is downloadable. We're still, uh, four months after the fact, averaging about 5,000 downloads a day. And that just tells me there was a built-in, a built, there was an audience that wanted and thirsted for information, photos, and things they weren't getting. So if I, and when we had three different audiences in mind, uh, had the media who come to the site and they've been using it. Uh, but then we had students. If I'm writing a paper on the Mustang, where can I get information? Well, I go to Wikipedia. Well, 80% of that's crap. So if, if they can download a 1965 Mustang brochure, they can read what it actually says there. And then they can yeah. get the paper. And then we knew the enthusiast clubs were going to love it. Uh, and they have loved it. And uh, the downloads are still amazing. We're up. I think we're getting close to 2 million searches within the site. And the downloads are still heavy duty on a, on a daily basis. What uh, Do you have a sense of uh, what's the most popular kind of content that folks download? Is it, uh, is it brochures? It's actually the photos, uh, but the brochures yeah. are close. And the it depends by audience, and we didn't we didn't watermark them, but we we breadcrumbed them so we can uh, mainly for legal. To, so if anybody uses one illegally, you know, if we start seeing coffee cups with with images on them, we'll we'll know. Uh, but you know, it's and it's and it says on the site free download for editorial use and personal use and scholastic use. 
Uh, it's the, the photos are getting used heavily by the media and by the students where the brochures are what are being used by the enthusiast club. You know, the Mustang Club of America has what, 65,000 members. And if I own a 1992 Mustang, you know, and I want to get that brochure, I'm, you know, I now have a place where I can get it and it's free and they can download it and they can do whatever they want to with it. Um, so we're going to add to it too. It's just the best news is we're going to add Mercury is going to go live in October and then Ford of England is going to go live in early December. And then what's root, we're going to break the internet a second time. We're going to make our, I know your, your father's experience in automobile uh, design and, uh, we're going to make our studio clays and concepts available in the first quarter of next year. So if you want to see cars that never were, if you, and so we will have them by, so like Mustang, we have more than 5,000 photos of Mustangs in clay form that show variations of what could happen to a Mustang. So you may not have known it, but in the early seventies, there was actually a proposed station wagon Mustang. The front is so recognizable as a Mustang. Whereas the back looks like a, a country squire wagon, so we're gonna we're gonna break the internet again, and we're gonna go live with our concepts and our clays in the first quarter of next year. Uh, once again, and the whole idea is open up Ford history and make it available for our fans. Why keep yeah. it behind glass that nobody can access? Get it out there, Ted. You know what we need to uh, we need to re they they need to launch that as a product, and you know what we need to name it? What the mullet Mustang. <laughs> oh, what is it? Uh, party in the uh, business in the front, and party in the back. There we go. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, what? So, what are some of your favorite items in the archives? Any, 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 any gold gems that that people would be surprised by? The ones that I've got a couple. The GT program book, Edison's second last breath. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that whole thing is just. Uh, I don't want to even go there. The the GT program, because of the movie Ford versus Ferrari, I got thrown into the fire of what really happened. And we didn't want to turn it into go see the movie Ford doesn't want you to see. But the Ford versus Ferrari is an excellent work of fiction. But now you know a whole lot of truth in there. But it's a great buddy movie and it's a great racing movie. Uh, the only thing they got right were the names Carol Shelby and Ken Miles and the fact that we won and that Ken Miles died at the end. Everything else is sort of made up. But in doing the deep dive research, I fell in love with the GT program. So every participant in 1966 with the winning entry was given a pair of gold cufflinks that had the numbers 24 on them. And we have a pair of those gold cufflinks that Edsel Ford personally gave me. And we have the GT program book. We have the actual contract that was on Enzo Ferrari's desk that he didn't sign uh, when Ford tried to buy Ferrari. So there, there's some spectacular items that are available there. One of, I always call it one of the Holy Grails is the 1962. It's, uh, December 5th, 1962 blue memo. Cause any, any executive vice president or higher correspondence took place on blue paper, uh, where Iacocca authorized the Mustang program. That's pretty cool. I you know that's mm -hmm. a document that, uh, Why to offer that one out at auction? I guarantee you, it would it would uh, it'd break whatever auction record was there. But it's never going to auction. It, it, you know, it's part of what our DNA is. So there's some there's some really amazing material in the archives. I do miss the fun stuff that Coke had. You know, Coke had Warhols and Rockwells and and 
uh, vending machines and this and that. And, and ours is more paper-based with a smaller artifact collection. But those papers tell a story. And when you find the right piece of paper and you consider the story that's being told, uh, it becomes very impactful. Uh, you know, pay, the, crafting a well or crafting a story very well around a piece of paper that tells a business objective that has a future, you know, it's great to celebrate the past. And when, you know, when the Bronco teams are in, I'm like, come on in guys, but you know, we're not going to have you redesign the 62 Bronco. But if you want to know what the DNA is, let's go look at every color that was ever on a Bronco. So we just mm -hmm. announced our heritage edition of the Bronco, which if you haven't seen it yet is amazing. And guess what? They plucked two of our heritage colors. And so that's where the archives really has an impact on what the business is doing on a on a daily basis. Yeah, and your point about about paper, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things, of course, that we're really focused on at History Factory is that you know tomorrow's history, of course, is being created today in Microsoft Word documents and PDFs and, and PowerPoint and, and and everything else. And I'm curious, you know, what challenges and opportunities do you see uh, for for the archives field and and specifically uh, those of us in the corporate and brand space? And how are you um, kind of confronting those challenges at Ford in terms of that sort of broader information and content management and publishing ecosystem of how you're continuing to be able to collect the right materials that are obviously now uh, not coming to you via paper? That is a really good question. And it's a really difficult question, as I'm sure you know, and you're struggling with it as well. But Ford announced yeah. this year, we're not producing brochures anymore. Right. So there's no more piece of paper to collect and put in my archives as right. a brochure. So if I, you know, do I get it and print it? Do I get it and uh, you know put in Adobe Archives? You know, you know what? How do you how do you treat that? And uh, the clays for those that don't know, a car is first designed and small scale, bigger scale, bigger scale, and it's built on clay. And they essentially take wooden uh, platforms and cover it with clay, and then these fantastic artists scrape it off in the form of a car. We used to take photographs of those every day, and I've got more than. Uh, 400,000 styling nags and, you know, showing the clays. Those don't exist anymore. You know, it's right. ad drawings. So it's going to be problematic. And I don't know that any archive has figured it out. We're stumbling along doing the best we can, trying to capture websites as best we can, trying to capture a smattering of information. And then factor number two is that so much is produced on a daily basis that, you know, what was it, uh, you know, more is produced, more photos taken on a day than were taken the whole first uh, 100 plus years photography existed. And, you know, the the scale is to the point now that it's really difficult to know, to, to make sure that you're collecting the, the proper things. The other things that I see as a corporate archivist, archivist in particular, and, uh, I was at an ICA workshop, International Council on Archives workshop. I was the same one in Stockholm. And I was asked that question. I, 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 the, one of the things I see that's coming down the road and corporate archives are going to have to learn how to deal with it is the demand for transparency where most corporate archives are closed. And we're, we're not closed to the public because we're hiding things. We're closed to the public because we exist to serve the needs of our corporate Right. And right. We don't we don't have the resources to just open it up. Obviously, it's right. not as as we always say. It's not like Ford's mission is to capture and preserve the 
history of the automotive industry and of the company, they've, they've, they've got, you know, broader, a broader purpose and mission. So yeah, I yeah. completely get it. And there's ways to do it too. At Coke, we donated all of our advertising to the Library of Congress. At Ford, we donated all of our films to the National Archives. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of records ongoing to the Benson Ford Research Center at the Henry Ford. Uh, but it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting, uh, uh, issue in, in, in the future, but, and then how do you forward migrate all these stupid platforms and, and, you know, is MOV still good? I'll never forget when I was at Coke still, we had all the speeches of Roberto Guizetta were done on a pre word 95 document system. It was, it was Microsoft, but it was pre 95. And that's when Microsoft made that quantum shift. We ended up having to find a expert who could forward migrate the documents and we kept the words, but we lost the formatting. Uh, and doing so. And I'm sure, uh, Jason, you've run into this as well, that, you know, forward migration is, is a serious issue. We do yeah. use Monisys, which is a Canadian company for our storage of our uh, digital assets, and, and they have the trusted digital repository system. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a knock on wood and, and prayer in the sky, it's going to work and that they're going to be able to do what they say and forward migrate. But so far, so good on that side. So, uh, yeah. my gosh, with I what was it the other day with a, a single ad shoot now generates more terabytes of material than you would have, you know, from the 70s. And right, right, it's gonna be difficult. Yeah, well, and certainly from our perspective, you know, the uh, we were saying around here, the enemy of good is perfect, and uh, you know, we're, we're we're capturing a fair amount of it, but we're just having to be very focused on here's the criteria. We're really focusing on collecting, you know, the kind of key content that you is really going to enable the organization to look back at any time and just have an understanding of kind of where they were at that time in history. Um, but there's no question the scale of it, the the pace of it. And um, and obviously also just all the concerns about um, cybersecurity, you know, all those things are making it, you know, uh, you know, incredibly, incredibly challenging. So yeah, I would think uh, I'm very fortunate. Leslie Armbruster has been with Ford now for almost 22 years and she developed our appraisal process and mm -hmm. is my crutch that I rely on on appraisal discussions. And I would think it'd be tougher in your your case because you sort of have to parachute in and become an instant SME uh and and really learn a company because it's by understanding the company ethos that that you know what is retained uh, right the, the the corporate corporate archives at coke was much smaller than the corporate archives at ford you know coke was marketing and fun stuff and paintings and uh we had a little bit of corporate stuff but you know at coke at, or at ford it's all corporate stuff you know uh records right. management uh you know flow into archives um and right. much more process oriented right exactly well cool well ted thank you so much um great great to talk to you and uh exciting to hear all the ways that you uh are doing a great job of really proactively uh getting the the heritage of the of the brand out in front of uh out front of the public so keep up the great work well, thanks, and you keep up the great work uh, talking these uh, companies into preserving their history because uh, uh, if they don't have their own archive, I would always rather see them go with the uh, the organization, organization like History Factory that's going to jump in and and get it set up and, and maintain it for the future because uh, uh, that's what it's all about. That's exactly right. Thanks, Ted. Good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you again to Ted Ryan from Ford. 
Check out the Ford Heritage Vault that we talked about at FordHeritageVault.com. And you can follow Ted and his adventures on his Twitter handle at TedRyan64. All right, that's our show. We'll be back soon with a new episode. Lots of good content coming your way. Until then, be well. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Dressel.